Hello and welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. Today I'm really looking forward to learning from Aaron Trent Johnson. Aaron is the CEO, principal coach, and founder of Community Equity Partners, and the senior advisor at the Equity Lab. Aaron works with educational, nonprofit, government, and tech organizations that are committed to creating equitable and inclusive practices. Her approach to coaching and leadership development helps organizational leaders notice, name, and disrupt systemic barriers to equity and inclusion within themselves and their organizations. Her coaching is heart-centered and built upon an anti-oppression analysis of people, organizations, and systems. She's extremely experienced inside of the space, she's a wonderful speaker and teacher, and she's committed to justice for communities of color and supporting leaders and communities in achieving their vision of liberation. So Erin, thank you again so much for taking the time to do this today. How are you doing? Thank you, Forrest. Um, I am... It's interesting when you ask that question because it's not a question you can answer easily or lightly these days. Um, And so I am at peace this week. Mm. I think that being connected to this moment, this opening um, that I feel in our uh, collective system and our collective consciousness Mm. brings me peace with the the mourning of the loss of George Floyd and his memorial yesterday and, and hope, hope for a movement that seems to be growing and growing every day. So, so there's a mix um, of emotions every day. Yeah. I mean, for starters, thank you for the extremely honest and open answer, uh, which I really appreciate. And I would love to actually start there with what you just said about hope. Um, because I've been kind of wondering about this a little bit myself recently, like, what do you hope that lingers and lasts after this kind of moment of consciousness Mm. that it seems like we're sort of collectively having here? Because there have been a lot of moments in the past where it seemed like there was a moment of consciousness, and then, you know, maybe things improved, but they certainly didn't get over the hump. So what are you hoping that we kind of retain after this? So I actually, you know, one of my mentors, um, Dr. Latisse Nieto, who does a lot of uh, oppression, anti-oppression work, she actually said something to me that was really helpful in the understanding that there are these moments of, of waking, of wakefulness um, and sleeping and dreaming. And then there are moments of real consciousness where we actually build Mm. skill. And that that's kind of really been what's grounding me in this moment right now where I, um, you know, sometimes question the hope, you know, I think every day I'm like, okay, what's the next big news story that's potentially going to overshadow the actual mass focus on systemic racism. Like I've been, we've been waiting for this, this moment like i've been preparing for this moment and um and so so you know when you see the awakening you can't always trust that it is full consciousness backed with skill and so Mm. what i am noticing though is that um there are people who who are actively um protesting who are a part of of the rebellion, who are part of the movement for racial justice and and um, and economic justice um, and justice for Black lives and, and, and the dignity for Black bodies, and that is a cross racial, cross gender 
coalition that we haven't seen before. Hmm. And so while a lot of folks are new in their journey, especially for a lot of white people who are out on the, on, on the front lines of protests, who are putting their bodies on the front lines of yeah. protests, that's new. So I've heard a mm-hmm. lot of words, yeah. you know, I think about James Baldwin's quote, um, you know, um, I, I can't believe what you say because I see what you do. And I'm seeing more doing these mm. days than I've, I've ever seen before. And so that action, um, if it is matched with skill, if it is matched with like deep inner transformation and a, and a deep connection to what it means to, to unburden oneself of, of the way that white supremacy has been embedded mm. inside mm-hmm. of, yeah. of, of our spirits and our souls and our bodies. Um, and then there's embodied movement. That's what gives me hope. And I think on the flip side of that, because I don't put all of my eggs in white people's baskets because I've been taught <laughs> not to do that. Um, yeah. I think that's generally a good piece of advice. I do. Um, have incredible hope in the resilience of black bodies and black people and and my ancestors um, who've come before me who I think have dreamed of this moment and the elders that are still here with us who are saying, you know, my elders of Angela Davis um, and Nikki Mm -hmm. Giovanni and many who were saying, this is a moment. So for those who have been in those past times where, where you couldn't know in your body if it was true, um, to say, this is your time. This is our opening. And this is our time and opening to speak, to speak prophetic truth, right? And to, to practice, to practice and apply, uh, the medicine of healing to our communities, mm. um, and specifically to the black community, to black bodies, to black women bodies, to black trans bodies, to black non-binary bodies, the bodies that are are the most harmed and the most marginalized. And then to do that in coalition with other non-black people of color, that has been tremendous. Um, and that the, the healing yeah. is at the center is also what is what feels new. Mm. I think that there was so much there that you said that was beautiful and true and wonderful. So thank you so much for that, for starters. And there were a couple of things that I want to particularly seize on. You were talking about um, both acknowledging the the framework fundamentally of white supremacy and the the structure of white priority mm-hmm. inside of this country and inside of white people more broadly. And then you talked about unburdening and awakening. And I, I want to kind of seize on that word of unburdening because I think that it is a beautiful word. So what do you mean by that? Why is it such an unburdening? So it's interesting in, in my coaching practice um, and the way that I've been trained as a coach, uh, I have some incredible teachers and mentors. And uh, one of my teachers who has spent a lot of time doing deep work in understanding the ways in which white supremacy has become embedded in our psyche um, and very much connected to the theory of internal family systems and also mixed with some other theory and practice. And so the, the practice of unburdening is, is literally, you know, releasing the attachment and releasing the relationship with the parts of us that, that don't believe that our true selves can survive without them. And so 
my dear friend and teacher, Sarah Jawide, who is a woman of color and brilliant, has been doing a lot of work. And I'm a part of that work around releasing and unburdening the white supremacy mm. parts that are, are embedded, that, that feel like they have to, to, to take care of us and help us survive and navigate the systems that have done us the most harm. Um, and so that's a lot of the practices. How do we recognize how we've internalized white supremacy as people of color mm. and black people as the general operating system? And that it is not the general mm-hmm. operating system, it is an operating system, and that we might be able to release and be connected to our own cultural concepts and our own cultural re- resources. Yeah, no, I think that's wonderful. And kind of implicit in what you're saying there is that there are these, uh, there are way more than two camps, but let's, for the sake of simplicity, call it two groups. There are people who, and systems, who are overtly, violently racist against BIPOC. Just And that as expressed in the death of George Floyd and the death of so many other people, where it is glaring, it is apparent, it is violent, the whole thing. And then there's this other circle with these systems that are more subtle, for lack of a better way of putting it. I think that to most people who experience them, they're not subtle, but I think to most white people, they're very subtle, where they may not be overtly or violently racist, but they were designed inside of a system that was built on a forwarding and centering of the white experience and a forwarding and centering of white people. I, as a white man, was born and educated inside of the system. I absolutely internalized elements of it, which became a part of my subconscious behavior. And they're a part of my behavior that I have to be conscious about and fight against regularly. And that's the part of the system that you kind of hear when somebody says, oh, I'm not racist, but, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. that's like that Mm -hmm. system presenting itself. And a lot of the, um, the really wonderful work that you're doing, and please correct me if I'm wrong here, but my understanding is that it's with a lot of people who walk into the room saying, I'm not racist, but essentially, and then you kind of dig into that and look at what that looks like. So as kind of a context here, what are maybe some of the more subtle behaviors and conscious behaviors, the ways in which these systems are playing with our minds and our hearts and our actions that somebody might not be aware of who thinks of themselves maybe as being quote unquote, not racist. Right. So that's, that's an incredibly important question. And I think I would go a step further and say that they're not even subtle, that they're in, invisible because they're embedded mm. into the white mm. way of being, which is seen as universal. And I think even, and that's why we talk about stage, you know, uh, being skilled um, and having consciousness and knowing mm-hmm. that 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 is not the one way of being, right? The one universal way. So just just in in that sort of understanding is the way in which we can hold the invisibility of whiteness and white supremacy. And again, not talking about the KKK white supremacy, but everyday white supremacy where where white yeah. bodies are held as the standard. Mm-hmm. And then a way that that plays out is then the white body denying that that is even a thing. Right. Mm. And then bodies of color having to prove that that is a thing when it shows up in, in every single system that exists, when it shows up 
in every single institution that exists. Um, and so it's, it's the way that white leadership is just generally accepted and never questioned. It's the way that, you know, the, the value of the white body, the way that we talk about the things that white people do, where it could be the same exact behavior as black people. You know, I, I, I think about the constant comparison of the riots and protests um, and, and comparison to the way that white people might be standing up for, you know, their gun rights. And how is that any different where you have white men standing with, with AK-47s and, and a, you know, the massive rifles on a government property, on state property, yeah. and black bodies, children just standing around are loitering, it's illegal, et cetera. It's a riot. It's a yeah. riot. And so that, you know, the way in which when Katrina, during Katrina, how, you know, white families who were just trying to survive had to go and get food out of stores that, that were late, that were vacant to survive, black people were looting. And so, you know, the, the value of the white body seen as supreme and pure and, um, and innocent, and then not, and then not being able to challenge that is, is mm, the invisible mm -hmm. protectiveness of, of whiteness. I think the, um, the most recent example of Amy Cooper in New York, while I think there's been many think pieces written on Amy Cooper, the second that I saw that, I was like, that's, that's two thirds of every white woman that works in every organization that anyone has ever worked mm. in, ever. Um, where, where the fragility of their whiteness and the, the, the audacity of like, how dare you challenge me? I'm going to feign vulnerability and, and use my, my, my whiteness and my understanding of mm. a racist system. Right. Cause it's not, it's, yeah. it, that's the part that's so calculated, that right? Yeah. Like I know what I'm doing. And so mm -hmm. I think, you know, especially when people say, well, we need to do unconscious bias training. And a lot of people of color, especially black people are like, it's not unconscious. Let's not, <laughs> let's not call it that. But that, you know, like, yes, unconscious yeah. bias does exist. And most of the harm that is, I think, experienced in a white supremacy culture um, is conscious. You know, it is, mm. there is, there is a, there is an inner knowing and I coach I coach white people who, who come to that awareness, right. Where it wasn't in the back yeah. of their psyche. It wasn't in their own, they wouldn't be able to access it. Right. So it's not like they had to take a test really quickly. We can do some, some really interesting work where if there's trust and vulnerability, there's a willingness to name, Oh wait, yes. I, I actually do see how I benefit from my whiteness and Oh yes. I don't actually want to let go of this. And yeah, that's, the that's a big part, part of it. Right. I, mm. I don't actually I like, and it, and it, and it sounds bad for me to say it. So I won't say it, but it is what I believe. And that manifests in, in relationships. It manifests in culture in organizations and it, it gets wielded as power. It gets hoarded as power. That power is hoarded. Those are some of the invisible but not invisible ways, the insidious ways, but 
you know, and I, and I think we, we find ways to make it sound more innocent so that it's more palatable for white people to talk about. Yeah, no, I think that that's right on the money. And I would love to get into some of the ways that you do that work with people, both generally and particularly. Have you seen any, um, my suspicion is that there's no magic moment here where like the light bulb suddenly goes on, but are there any key tipping points or teachings you do with people or coaching you do with people that really um, moves the needle from that that like passive stance of, oh, I'm not racist to doing the active internalization, the deep work, the awareness uh, that is kind of on the path to acknowledging all of those truths and becoming more actively anti-racist. Yes. There are these, uh, right? There, there isn't a magic pill, but there are yeah, these um, these moments that I think are precipitated by certain moves that can be made. And so first I would say, it is different when I am facilitating and doing group work versus when I'm coaching and doing one-on-one work. The group work has the possibility of, you know, having many voices contribute so that that alters the learning for, for, um, for some individuals. So sometimes the tipping point is just hearing and bearing witness to the awakening of other white people. And in that work, I always work with a white co-facilitator. The the allostatic load and the burden on me ha- to help white folks become awake is is too great. And and also yeah. the way that the way that racism works is that uh, <laughs> that that sometimes there there is a way that you can't hear it from me. Even if, you know, if I'm constantly smiling and I'm doing all the things to soften my blackness, which is what is asked of me, right? And which is I, I won't do, right? Yeah. But if I'm asked to be, it's come out of my integrity in order to soothe white comfort, in order to get white people to understand the harm that's done, then, then there isn't any real embodied learning there. So for a white person to be in loving accountability, and I think the, I think it's, you know, my work is also, it's centered in love. So for a white person to be in loving accountability in relationship with a group or with individuals, that's where I see transformation being possible. Mm -hmm. You know, I think a lot of times in groups, white people will say things like, oh, but we need to hear from the people of color because that's the only way we're going to learn. And it's a constant excuse because it's Mm -hmm. like, no, we didn't build this system. So you don't have to learn by spectating and watching us thrive in pain and then have to go back to a meeting with you the very next day. So that's, that's a common excuse. You can very much learn about white supremacy and racism and the harm that's done from other white people who have done their Mm -hmm. work and have loving accountability, which means they've done their inner work and they understand how, how white supremacy manifests in their everyday behavior. They know that it's lifelong work. They're committed to the lifelong work. And they're also likely in deep, authentic relationship with people of color because they, they've been able to make that commitment. So they don't speak on behalf of people of color. They speak on behalf of themselves. And that's an invitation yeah. to other white people. That's what I've witnessed as an invitation in, in group work. I think also watching and witnessing what a real authentic cross-racial relationship looks like where, you know, I am not uh, contorting myself to make 
my counterpart comfortable, but we actually have a genuine authentic relationship and I can show up in my full blackness and, and that partner can show up as a full conscious white person and we can show what it looks like to be in real, right. in in real relationship, people don't have a lot of examples of that. You don't, you don't really see that often. And that's the same approach that I have to my coaching. And so when I Mm. coach cross-racially, when we build a conscious relationship, I very much name, these are the ways that racism is going to show up in our relationship. I'm going to tell tell you that right now up front. And then there are going to be ways that I can't tell you, and they're going to happen in the moment. And we're going to be able to have, we're going to have to have a container um, around our relationship for repair when it happens, because it is going to happen. Mm. Mm-hmm. And so I'm going to need to feel fully, um, fully comfortable and in my power and have the agency to reflect back to you as your coach, what I am noticing, what I'm noticing in your body language. You know, when I say certain words, when I ask you a question, what you're feeling in your body and for a lot mm-hmm. of white people to become embodied and to actually recognize, right. The, yeah. the emotion and the sensation and, and, and to be, um, connected to that part of their humanity, which they lost Mm. in order to receive white supremacy and to order to be, to be, to benefit from white supremacy, right? What their ancestors lost and gave up for them. That's hard work. And so I, but I can, I, I can see it happening in the moment. So I have, I have seen the moments of, of consciousness and conscious awareness and it's not um, it's not regular. Like I choose specific clients who I know are ready, who are ready to make that kind of commitment, and who are also committed to centering the experiences of Black bodies. And they they want to be in authentic partnership and relationship, um, and they want to they want to elevate Black leadership. And so, as a leadership coach, that is deeply important because you can have a black CEO, executive director, et cetera, et cetera. But unless the culture in the organization and the people have understood how they have internalized anti-blackness, that leader is, is going to struggle. And so to have mm. partners that are actively doing their work mm. as a white person in that organization whether it's a board chair, a board member, et cetera, who understands the hoarding of power, who understands the way that paternalism shows up in, in, in their relationships, um, who understands how the protection of white comfort may cause the leader of color to never fully stand in their power. That's what consciousness looks like. That's what, what, what skill looks like when they're able to not only take that awareness and then practice, and then it shows up in their behaviors. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Aaron, I would love to spend another uh, another half an hour at least talking with you here, but I also want to be really conscious of your time. Um, I mean, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. And if you have just a minute or two more, there's a question that I'd like to ask everybody who comes on the podcast. And there's something about reflection and history that is such a huge part of this. And you named, obviously, the huge historical systems that have helped to create this moment. I don't even know if I have the right language to describe that, but I'll just take it on faith that everyone listening knows what I mean. And so I I feel like this question is particularly poignant these days. If you had the opportunity to go back in time and talk to yourself, 
as a child, as a young adult, whenever would have been most meaningful for you, what would you want to tell that person? Hmm. Ah, I would go back to third grade um, when I was eight years old, when I first felt like I don't belong because my body doesn't belong. And that my love for school, while it came back, was lost um, because, mm. because as a young black girl, I was told that I was too much um, and, and by my teacher who did not know how to relate to me, who couldn't see me as fully human. And I knew that at eight years old. And so I would go back and I have, I have done my own healing work. So I would go back and I would tell her, you are enough. You are enough. Be as big as you are. You are enough. Well, Aaron, thank you so much for that. I really appreciate the the sharing and the vulnerability and just your time here in general today. So thank you again so much for joining me. Thank you. So today I had the absolute pleasure of speaking with and learning from Erin Trent Johnson. The work that she does inside of the space is just phenomenal. And if you would like to learn more about Erin or her organization, Community Equity Partners, I've included a link to it in the description of today's podcast. Erin spoke with such a beautiful combination of heart and sensitivity and awareness and awakening and just all of the adjectives that we used throughout the conversation uh, to what's going on in this moment and her hopes for the moment. Because it does really feel, at least right now, like there's something happening here that hasn't happened before, at least in my lifetime. And I think that it's appropriate to have hope and be optimistic about the possibility and potential that it has for our future. Erin spoke about some of the ways that internalized white supremacy and structures of white centering and white privilege show up in our culture. As she said, many of these tendencies or structures are somewhat invisible in nature, but there are also many instances, like in the case of Amy Cooper, who weaponized her white privilege, essentially, where there's no subtext, there's no question. It's very clear to all the participants in the interaction that there is a power dynamic based on white supremacy. And that's part of what struck so many people so much about that exchange was the way in which that underlying bed, that underlying context of that racial power dynamic was just brought out into the open very clearly. Then Aaron shared about the work she does with individuals and organizations to help liberate people from that internalized white supremacy. One of the things that she said that really struck me personally that I'm going to really uh, think about and try to take into my own understanding and behavior was how she emphasized how important it is to have often in these gatherings a white co-facilitator, uh, a white person who can hold up to other white people their own awakening journey around these topics. And what she said there reminded me of this uh, quote that I've seen going around, or it was a tweet. I want to give proper attribution, so I'll try to find it and include it in the notes of today's podcast, which said something along the lines of, white supremacy won't go away until white people start thinking of it as a white problem that they have to solve, 
rather than a black issue that they have to empathize with. And I thought that she spoke really eloquently to just why that is the case and why it's so important inside of this work to have a co-facilitator who can really hold up that own journey that they've gone on. So I hope you enjoyed today's conversation. If you've been enjoying the podcast in general, we'd really appreciate it. If you would take a moment to subscribe to it through the platform of your choice and maybe even leave a rating and a positive review, it really does help us out. And also we have a Patreon page. It's patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. You can support us there for the cost of just a couple cups of coffee a month. And in return, you'll receive a bunch of bonuses. If you're interested in supporting the show, I've included a link to our Patreon in the description of today's episode. So until next time, thanks again for listening to Being Well.